0: Welcome to the Preaching Ministry Podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Where our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. What a privilege it is to be here! I do not take lightly the assignment to ever preach anywhere. And certainly never take lightly the invitation to preach in the wonderful Mount Pisgah Baptist Church of Easley. And on a night like tonight where God has just been up to something absolutely supernatural and powerful and divine as he has been doing this week, we've sensed it since the opening note from this past Sunday morning, my prayer tonight is that I'll stay out of the way and not mess it up and that the Lord would be glorified. As you take your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me this evening to the book of Ephesians and the second chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. One reason that that song fits so wonderfully well with what the Lord has set before us tonight in the second chapter of Ephesians is because this, this truth tonight is really so connected to my personal testimony. I shared in the 1030 service this past Sunday, those of you that were in the nine o'clock service perhaps did not hear this, but I was raised in a denomination in a wonderful Christian home. My mom and dad loved the Lord, and I'm grateful for my upbringing, but I was raised in a denomination of churches that believed essentially that because you can lose your salvation, that your entrance into the family of God was based on the grace of God, but you staying in the family of God was based on your behavior. You had to merit or earn or kind of keep it up. I think I said Sunday, I, I had the idea that, that Jesus made the down payment, but I had to keep up the regular installments. And that was bad enough theology for a little boy, but when I got to middle school and discovered girls, that was a very oppressive kind of theology, thinking that I was saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost. And uh, God used His Word to write on my heart as a ninth grade student in high school that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, listen now, everything necessary for me to be forgiven, saved, secured, and taken to heaven was finished on the cross. Some believer tonight needs to be encouraged to put your past under the blood of Christ. And someone tonight who's never been saved needs to know that if you think you can't be good enough to be saved, well, you can't be. But thank God you don't have to be. Salvation is based on his goodness, his wonderful mercy and grace. And the passage that I was studying as a ninth grade high school freshman is the text set before us tonight. And from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I want to give you a few minutes of the bad news and then some glorious good news. Because it's the badness of the bad news that makes the good news so wonderfully, wonderfully good. Tonight, I wish to label the message grace before and after. Grace Before and after. Ephesians chapter 2, we begin our reading in verse 1. If you're able and willing, I'll invite you to stand to your feet to honor the public reading of the Word of God. Paul writes to believers and says, And you hath he quickened, that is, he's made you alive, brought you to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past he walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh. He's talking about us now, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Father, I now ask that the same Holy Spirit that moved the heart and the hand and the pen of the blessed Apostle Paul, may that same Holy Ghost have absolute control in this service tonight. Arrest our attention, captivate us by your grace. For those who have tasted the mercy of Calvary, may we rejoice tonight and commit that we will live in light of your marvelous mercy. And for those who've never been redeemed, God, I pray by your Spirit, You would quicken them unto life everlasting through the proclamation of the gospel of your son, Jesus. And we pray all of it to the ultimate end that Jesus would be glorified. He's the only one worthy of any praise tonight. And we gladly offer our prayer and give our worship to Jesus in his name. God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Grace before and after. You know, whether it's a before and after picture of weight loss or a cosmetic makeover, maybe a new hairdo or perhaps the remodeling of a house, our hearts and minds are intrigued by before and after pictures. But in an economy of words, the Spirit of God moves through the hand of the Apostle Paul. He picks up an inspired pen and uses it like an artist's brush to paint one of the most graphic and picturesque and vivid before and after pictures that our heart could ever imagine. It's the picture of a man before and after grace. It's the picture of a woman before and after she's encountered the touch of God's grace. It's the picture of a teenager who was lost but has now been found. It's the picture of a seven or an eight-year-old, nine-year-old little boy or girl who was spiritually blind, but now they see by the grace of God. Tonight in these 10 verses, I want to just give you two simple points related to the life of grace before and after. Now in verses one through three, if you're taking notes, just jot down these two little words, before grace, Paul lowers the boom. He pulls no punches. He doesn't sugarcoat it or soft sell it. He wants his readers, in this case, born-again, blood-bought readers to know what their life was like before they were captured by the grace of God. We are reading tonight and studying in chapter 2 of Ephesians, but, but quickly let me review the first chapter. Back in chapter 1, Paul sets forth the doctrine of what we might call Trinitarian salvation, that if you are saved, your salvation was a work that, that involved God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 4, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined us, don't be afraid of that word, he predestined us to adoption as his sons, according to nothing but the kind intention of his will. In chapter 1, verse 7, we learn the involvement of God the Son, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read of the the work of the Holy Spirit, that he, has, he the Spirit of God, has sealed us unto the day of redemption. It has been rightly said that chapter one teaches we've been picked by the Father, purchased by the Son, and preserved by the Spirit. Or you could say we were selected by the Father, saved by the Son, and hallelujah, we've been sealed by the Spirit. Now, that's how salvation had to be it had to be a work of God. It had to be a work of grace because of who we were and what we were before grace. In my notes, I've jotted down the lyrics to one of my favorite newer songs. I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I'll tell you, I was lost and I was blind, didn't even realize it at the the moment, but I was running out of time because my sin had separated, and the breach was far too wide. That, dear friend, is the story of a life before grace, and I want you to go with me into the darkness of an unconverted life as we examine what the Bible says about anyone in this room tonight that is lost and undone in their sin. And it's the pre-salvation testimony of everybody who is now redeemed. Number one, a life before grace, we were dead to the word of God. Verse one begins, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead to the word of God. Now, there are basically three theological positions to describe the condition of someone apart from Christ. There are some theologically who would say that a lost man is generally good. The theologian would call them Arminian. They believe that that a lost man is basically good And, and if we remove all of the environmental factors that are holding him or her down, causing them to act like a derelict, then if we remove the external then their internal innate goodness will naturally emerge. Didn't come tonight to be political, but political liberalism is based out of this particular theological position. The idea that the reason that man is a criminal is because society has oppressed him. And if we'll put some government shoes on his feet, government food in his belly, government clothes on his back, government roof over his head, then his innate goodness will emerge. You don't have to be a theologian to know that just ain't so. But if you know your Bible, Romans three ten and 11 says, there is none good. There's none that seeketh after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Some say that a lost man is basically good. But the truth is worse. The second view is that a lost man, he's not good, but he's sick. He needs a helping hand, a leg up, a point in the right direction. Not to be offensive, but much modern-day evangelism has taken on this view. The idea is that a lost man just wants to do right, but he needs a little help. And so we'll close our eyes, bow our heads, and promise that nobody will look around while you could privately pray a prayer, secretly lift a hand, and then we tell you to publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ. Some would even joke that a lost man is so sick, what he needs is a pill, the gospel. And not only is that corny humor, let the church say amen right there, it's bad theology. A lost man is not good. The truth is worse. A lost woman is not sick. The truth is worse. The third view, the biblical view, is that without God, without grace, a lost person is dead. Our text tells us tonight that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Greek word is "necros," and it just simply refers to death. We get our word of necrophilia, speaking of someone's twisted, perverted affection for, for death and things of, of, uh, of related to death. If you are injured bodily and you go to the doctor, and they tell you that the wound has begun to have necrotic tissue. That means that the tissue around that wound is dead. And that's the word the Holy Spirit baptizes into this text and ascribes to the testimony of a life before grace. This word dead, necros, was attributed to Lazarus in John 12, verse 1. It described the son of the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7. This word necros was used to describe the power of Jesus Christ to raise people from the necros, to raise them from the dead. And Paul uses this word to describe the bodily, physical condition of Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross. He wasn't good, he wasn't sick, he was doornail, toe tagged, stone cold, dead. In Acts chapter 3. Peter testified that God raised Jesus from the necros, raised him from the dead. And in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles and more importantly lied to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says they fell down and they dropped to the floor, doornail, necros, they were dead. For you see, in the Bible, death and sin are always connected. From the garden of Eden in Genesis 2:17, the warning of heaven was the day that you eat of that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. Romans 5:12 says that sin entered the world through one man, and death came in by way of sin, and now death has passed or spread to all men for all have sinned. Ezekiel said the soul that sins Shall surely die. Paul said in Romans 6:23 that the wages of sin is death. Now, if you miss this Bible truth, you'll be ultra confused about the condition of someone that's not saved. For we were not good and we were not sick, we were dead to the word of God. But it gets worse. Well, we find in verse 2, we were desensitized to the work of God, wherein in time past she walked according to the course of this world. That is, we were dead and didn't know it, dead and didn't care, dead and unresponsive The preacher was witnessing to a lost woman and said, do you know, ma'am, what your problem is? And she said, quite frankly, I don't know and I don't care. He said, you're right on both counts. A lost person is unable to save themselves if they wanted to and unwilling to save themselves if they could. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, the Bible says, the God of this world, little g, referencing the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. If you've got a lost person in your family, someone you're praying for, maybe you will occasionally ask, why why won't they see? Why won't they hear? Why won't they understand? Brothers and sisters, it is not that they won't, it's that apart from the work of God's grace, they cannot. For they are dead to the word of God and desensitized to the work of God. I I give you by way of illustration, go to your family cemetery this coming Thanksgiving. Set up a beautiful feast there by great-grandma's grave. I don't care how juicy the turkey is, she won't salivate. I don't care how juicy the family gossip is, she's not gonna lean her ear in to hear it. Do you know why? Because if she's in that grave, she is dead. And that is the condition of a life before grace. Dead to the word of God, but it gets worse. Desensitized to the work of God, but it gets worse. We were disobedient to the will of God. Notice what the Bible says again in verse two, wherein in time past she walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Be very, very clear. When the Bible says that a lost person is dead in their sins, that doesn't mean that you are dead to the world or dead to the flesh or dead to sin. It simply means you are dead where it counts. Dead in that part of you that needs to be rightly related to God. But your flesh is very much alive. Your flesh is very much at work. And even at your best, you cannot live a life that's pleasing to God. I'm talking about how bad the bad news is. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness is a filthy rag before God. Not your unrighteousness, your righteousness is a filthy rag before God. Hey, not you on your worst day, you on your best day. Unrighteous, ungodly, unacceptable to the thrice holy God to whom and of whom we have sung tonight. This is why Jesus prophesied that on the day of judgment, That some would come calling him Lord, Lord, and they would say, did we not? prophesy in your name and in your name perform signs and wonders and cast out demons? Did we not do all of that in your name? In other words, Brother Chad, did did we not pastor the church? Did we not serve as deacons? Did we not teach in the grow groups? Did did we not sing in the choir? Did we not do all these wonderful, wonderful religious things? And Jesus said, I will say to them, depart from me, you worker of... Iniquity, lawlessness. Jesus considers choir singing, grow group teaching, Baptist church pasturing to be a work of wicked, lawless, unrighteous iniquity apart from grace. We were dead to the word of God, but it gets worse. We were desensitized to the work of God, but it gets worse. We were desensitized and disobedient to the will of God, but it gets worse. We were destined for the wrath of God. Verse 3 concludes, and we were by nature, that is because of who we are and what we were, we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, pastor, when I describe the lost dead condition of an unsaved person and describe good works as being works of iniquity, it's here that even good church members will begin to balk. I wasn't that bad Before I was saved, or perhaps one in this room tonight or watching online. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not really that bad. Lean in close and listen. A woman cannot be a little bit pregnant. That's right. And a sinner can't be a little bit dead. That's right. Now, death may have run its awful course in one corpse's case, more so than another, but both are equally dead. The person at the Greenville Hospital that died this afternoon is just as dead as George Washington, because you can't be a little bit dead. I cite, for example, the three individuals that our Lord resurrected in his earthly ministry. Now we know according to Matthew 27 that following his resurrection, many of the Old Testament saints were resurrected and walked the streets of the Holy Land. But there were three individuals that Jesus by name raised from the dead when he walked on the earth. There was Jairus's daughter, there was the son of the widow of Nain, and and there was Lazarus now, when the little girl died, they argued as to whether she was really dead. Her her face was still red and flush with the fever that had taken her life. The young man of Nain, he was in the casket, headed out to be buried. The, the greenness of decomposition had begun to set in around his eyes and his joints. He'd been dead for a day or so. And Lazarus, four days now, he'd been in the grave of Bethany, and his sister had enough sense to say, Jesus, you don't want them to move that stone away because by, by now the gases of decomposition have begun to swell. His body perhaps begun to rupture. And, and by, by now, the King James says, behold, by now he's stinking. But they were all equally dead. Only the people in the house knew the girl was dead. Only the people in the little village of Nain knew the young man was dead. Everybody in the region around Bethany knew that Lazarus was dead. But they were all equally dead. Lean in close, friend, and listen. You may be respectfully dead like the young girl, regrettably dead like the young man or repulsively dead like cold, dead Lazarus. But you can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit dead. What is the life without Christ before grace? Dead to the word of God, but it gets worse. Desensitized to the work of God, but it gets worse. Disobedient to the will of God, but it gets worse. Destined for the wrath of God. For verse two describes a lost person as a son of disobedience. And in a parallel text over in Colossians 3, 6, the Bible says the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And you see the Bible teaches that someone that's not saved, listen carefully, is not merely destined for the wrath of God to come. But Jesus said a lost person is under condemnation already. And our Lord described condemnation with words and phrases like fire, everlasting fire, eternal damnation, hellfire, damnation, damnation of hell, resurrection of damnation, furnace of fire, fire that is never quenched, torment, a place where the worm never dies, outer darkness and everlasting punishment. Jude 6 describes the condemnation as everlasting chains. Hebrews 6:2 calls it eternal judgment. Jude 7 describes it as eternal fire. 2 Peter 2:17 2, says it is darkness reserved forever. Jude 13 blackness of night forever and ever. And Revelation 14 says it is a torment that goes on day and night forever and ever and ever. As a pastor, I'm occasionally asked, what does a person have to do to die lost and go to hell? And the answer is nothing. That is the default setting of the soul. Because a person without Christ is dead, desensitized, disobedient, and destined for the wrath of God. It was the first week of January, 2003. I went to a funeral at the Homerville Church of God. That's a little city down in Southeast Georgia, about an hour or so from my house. I was there because of a family connection to our church. I was attending the funeral of a young man, college-aged man, who had been a drunk driver on New Year's Eve. And in that two-car collision, he killed himself his buddy, and five members out of seven that were in another minivan. He killed a mama, her mama, and three of that mama's four children. And if you know anything about small towns, that was a major community event. We packed into the Homerville Church of God And I heard that mama down on the front row over and over again. If she said it once, she yelled it out 25 times. Oh God, my boy's in hell. Oh God, my boy's in hell. Now listen carefully. I don't know if he was or not, but I can tell you this every person that dies before grace dies under the wrath of god dead to the word of god but it gets worse desensitized to the work of god but it gets worse disobedient to the will of god but it gets worse destined for the eternal, unending wrath of God. And it just can't get any worse than that. And then this text and my testimony swing on a beautiful, glorious hinge of two little words, but God, God God had something to say to mercifully, lovingly, listen, graciously intervene in the life before grace. And with that in mind, I want to examine verses four through 10 as we consider the life after grace for every recipient of grace has undergone a radical transformation. The hymn writer said, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Paul told the Corinthians that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does the text teach us? Describe the life after Grace. And by the way, if you've never been saved, you perhaps cannot envision the life that Paul is about to describe, but this can be your life tonight before you leave this room. The life after grace, first of all, involves a sovereign pity. For verse 4 begins not with but man, not with so I, not so the church not so the Baptist convention, but God, who is rich in mercy, (laughs) hallelujah, for his great love, wherewith he has loved us. This verse teaches us that God takes the initiative. As the prophet Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. And here is his motivation. What would motivate God to save a sinner like me and to offer salvation for a sinner like you? Did he look down through time and see what a great guy you were? You better hope not because you're not. Did he look down through time and see what a great lady you would be? You better hope that's not the plan because apologies to your mama, but you ain't really all that in a bag of chips. God saved us not because we're lovable, He saved us because he is loving. And by the way, you'll never know real love until you know it through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John said, in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God saved us not because we're savable He saved us because he is a savior. He loves us not because of who we are. Listen, he loves us because of who he is. And so as we, before grace, look at our past and the shame and the sin of it and wonder how could God ever save someone like me? Friend, you're looking at the wrong side of the equation because salvation is not offered based on who you are. Quite frankly, it's not based on what you've done. Salvation is based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done at the cross of Calvary. Years ago, I was witnessing to an elderly black gentleman, and in the providence of God, I went by his house literally the day that he had gotten out of state prison. I met him that evening, and I began sharing the gospel with him from what Bible students might know as the Romans Road. And I shared with him Romans three ten and eleven that he's not good and not seeking after God. But 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 I told him that that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans three twenty three. Took him to Romans six twenty three for the the wages of that sin, the just penalty of that sin. What we deserve is death. But that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As tears ran down his face. That's when he told me he had just gotten out of prison that day, and he started telling me some of the things that he had done to earn prison. And he said, do you you mean Jesus would save me after all I've done? I said, sir, the answer to that question is yes, but the answer is even better than that. Not only would Jesus die on the cross for you and save you after all you've done, Turn over here to Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just love you and save you after all you've done. He loved you and died on the cross for you before you did all the things that you've done, knew you were going to do it, saw you sitting tonight at the Mount Pisgah Baptist Church of Easley, South Carolina, lost in your sin, damned and on your way to hell, and loved you so much that he came into this world, died on the cross, rose from the dead, that you could be saved all the love that drew salvation's plan and all the grace that brought it down to man hallelujah all the mighty gulf that god did span at calvary it begins with a sovereign pity now, you may not feel like your daddy loved you you may not feel like your kids love you but the god who created you in the womb of your mother who knows you better than you know yourself? Lean in close and listen. He loves you. And the life after grace begins with a sovereign pity, but it gets better. The life after grace continues with a saving power. Verse 5 Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ by grace ye are saved. He didn't just love us and leave us. Hey, friend, he loved us and lifted us. How much power was manifested in his love? Well, with your Bible open, I want to do a little Bible study. Turn back to chapter 1, and I want you to look at verse 19, probably just up the page. Chapter 1, verse 19. Paul said, here's the kind of power of Jesus I want you to know. And what is the exceeding Power, greatness of his power to us were to believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. How much power does God utilize in saving a lost person? Hey friend, it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you think about it, it just makes sense. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you don't just need a preacher. You don't just need a doctor. You need to connect to somebody who knows how to raise the dead. I'm thankful for grace tonight because I was dead in my trespasses and sin. And the same power that went by Jairus' house and raised that little girl from the dead. The same power that interrupted the funeral procession at Nain and raised that young man from the dead. Are you listening to me? The same power that stood outside the grave of Bethany and said, Lazarus, come forth. And a man came walking bound head and foot. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. The same power that reached into a garden tomb the first Sunday after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and a dead Resurrected Messiah started breathing again. That same power came by the Sunday night service and touched the heart of an eight year old boy and transferred me from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of light. If you sit here and wonder, could God save me? You must not understand the resurrection power of my God. Oh, life after grace involves a sovereign pity. But it gets better. It involves a saving power. But it gets better. It involves a sanctified practice. Verse 6, he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Drop down to verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk therein. Here's what God did for me in grace. He saw me dead in my trespasses and sins, breathed the life-transforming, life-giving power of the gospel into my soul, made me alive, saved me, raised me up, and in so doing transformed my very nature. It is through the power of this gospel message that the harlot can become a homemaker, that the drunkard can become a good daddy, that the thief can be clothed with integrity, that the liar begins to tell the truth, that the promiscuous can begin to live in purity, not as an act of moral reformation. These are the results of a spiritual resurrection and transformation. When I talk to people who are lost in their sin, Oftentimes they'll say, I'll be saved just as soon as I can live it. If that's your condition, you'll die lost in your sin and go to hell forever because you'll never be able to live the Christian life apart from the Christ of that life coming to take up residence in your life and enabling you by his grace to live a sanctified practice. The bottom line is, by grace, I'm not a new and improved version of my previously unimproved self. I am totally brand new, a different person through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who follow me and know my ministry know that I don't like Chinese food. Just don't like Chinese food. In fact, uh, some years ago, I went over to take a couple of my deacons to lunch, and I said, where do you wanna go? And one of them said, let's go to Wong's palace. I said, maybe I, maybe I wasn't clear enough. I don't like Chinese food. They said, it's under new management. It's now the best Chinese food you'd ever put in your mouth. I said, that's a contradiction of terms. There ain't no such thing as the best Chinese food, because I ain't putting no Chinese food in my mouth. I don't like Chinese food. I hope the owner of the Chinese restaurant is not a member of your church and on your finance building committee, but uh, I said, don't like Chinese food. And and I've told that for years, for years. But do you know, it's only been about six months or so ago that it occurred to me to tell my church, Brother Chad, why I don't like Chinese food. Because I grew up liking Chinese food. We grew up eating Chinese food about every other Sunday, not because my parents liked Chinese food, but because at the China Palace in Valdosta, Georgia, where I was raised... Uh, the kids under twelve could, could could eat for free with a paying adult, and we were we were blue collar half broke and so my parents knew a good deal when they heard one, so it was wonton soup and egg rolls and rife and fried rice and all this kind of stuff about every other Sunday. I grew up loving and eating Chinese food in fact. Not long after Andrea and I got married, I was working on staff at a church, and one day all the staff members piled into the church van, and we went over to a Chinese restaurant there in Macon, Georgia, and I I ate it. I loved it. I love Chinese food, but I went home that night and got sick as a dog. I did not say I got sick on dog. Didn't say that. I did not say that. Don't you misquote me. I said, I said sick as a dog. <laughs> I mean, I was hugging the porcelain altar. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I was confessing sins I don't even think I'd ever committed before because I thought I was going to meet Jesus that night. I'm talking sick. I think I threw up my big toenail that night. Sick. A couple of weeks later, all the staff getting together, going to lunch. Hey, let's hop on the church van. Let's go back over to the Chinese restaurant. I said, sounds good. I love Chinese food, been eating Chinese food all my life. Walked in the door, smelled that smell. And my mind took me back to hugging that toilet that night when I was so sick. And I said, y'all can eat here. It's kind of a shared parking lot with the Burger King. I'm going to go BK have it my way. Nobody had to tell me that I didn't like Chinese food anymore. Scientists will tell you what had transpired in my mind. My thinking about that had been rewired. I didn't have to have a 10-part lesson on Chinese food. I didn't have to go to a discipleship class about Chinese food. Listen to me, students. My appetite had been changed. My mind had been rewired. Stuff that I used to like, I didn't like it anymore. Places I used to love to go, I didn't want to go there anymore. And it wasn't because somebody was oppressively telling me that I couldn't go. Down from the inside of me, something had been changed. Listen, and that's what happens after grace. You've got new appetite. got a new desire. You don't like the same stuff you used to like because you're not who you used to be. You don't go where you used to go, not be happy about it because you're not what you used to be. You, you, you can't keep doing the same old stuff because you're not the old you. You are now living a life of a sanctified practice after grace. Amen. You see, before grace, the drunk drives by the bar and he says, I'm just going to stop in for one little drink. And five hours later, he comes home to a broken-hearted wife. He's done it again. After grace, he doesn't need the booze anymore because he's met a man who said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Before grace, the single adult says, I can't control myself. After grace, they say, I've been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God with my body. You see, after grace, I'm no longer dead to God, but I'm alive to God. He saw me with a sovereign pity, but it gets better. He redeemed me with a saving power, but it gets better. He enables me with a sanctified practice, but it gets better. He has given me, listen, a secure position. Now, everything that I've been saying up to this point has been introduction. Now is when my sermon begins. (laughs) I hope you've been listening because you know what I would do if I didn't think you'd been listening up to this point? I'd start all the way over at the beginning and preach this whole sermon right back up to this point. So have you been listening? Say amen. I'm talking about a secure position. How secure is a life after grace? It's so secure that God has already determined what he's going to do with your redeemed soul for all of eternity. You see that in verse seven. That in the ages to come. Now class, look at me. Is that talking about now or is that talking about eternity, the ages to come? Talk to me if you want to go home. Is that talking about now or is that eternity? So that in eternity... So that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God has already secured me a position in heaven and determined that he's going to use me to bring honor and glory to Jesus in the ages to come. You say, can you explain that? I'll give you a little illustration. When I was six years old, I played t-ball. I don't look like much, but I was a real mean shortstop. (laughs) Couldn't bat my way out of a wet paper bag even in t-ball. I mean, it was bad. But at the end of the season, I got my very first trophy. My daddy was proud of that trophy because he's proud of his boy. When I brought that trophy home from the sports banquet, my dad cleared off the mantelpiece over the fireplace, set that little t-ball trophy right on the center of the mantel, fixed the spotlight shining on it, and if you came by my house, any time right around 1976, 1977, my daddy was gonna take you by the mantelpiece and point to that trophy. Now you parents and grandparents know are ahead of me. My dad wasn't proud of that trophy. He was bragging on his boy. The trophy was a representative of what the boy had done. Look right here. How secure is my salvation after grace? God already has a spot reserved in the trophy case of heaven. Got my name right there in front of it, just waiting on me to get to heaven. And when I get to heaven, he's going to place my redeemed soul up on that trophy case. And for all of eternity, anybody that walks by, he's going to say, look at that trophy of grace named Mike. I'm telling you, you, and he ain't bragging on me now. He's bragging on his boy. He's bragging on Jesus. It's a way of saying, let me tell you, if my son Jesus could save a lost sinner like that, oh, how glorious and powerful and wonderful and magnificent and amazing is my son Jesus Christ. Amen. You say, what are you gonna do in that trophy case for all of eternity? The hymn writer put it like this, and when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. For you see, he looked down on me in pity, but it gets better. He transferred me from death to life, but it gets better He enables me to live a life that is pleasing to him, but it gets better. By that same grace, he has so fixed it where I can never, ever, ever fall out of grace. And I am more sure that my soul will be in heaven forever than that I am standing at the Mount Pisgah Baptist Church of Easley, South Carolina tonight. And it's all because of one reason, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just can't get any better than that. And I told you about the old black gentleman that I went to witness to that night who was amazed that God would save him. When I got through presenting those passages from the Romans Road to him, we knelt down in the floor of his living room. And at that time, I was gonna lead him in a prayer of repentance. And that night shocked me. We knelt down in these two ugly recliners. <laughs> and I was kneeling over here, and he was kneeling over there. And I, I said, just, just, just pray what I'm saying to you tonight. If you want to be saved, ask the Lord to save you. Right. Call on the name of the Lord. I said, You just pray, Dear Lord Jesus. You know what I was expecting him to say, don't you? Dear Lord Jesus. But he said, Oh God. Now by this time, I was peeking. Oh God. I'm a sinner and I've been a sinner all my life but if you'll save me I'll live for you and I mean no disrespect but with tears coursing down his aged face he looked at me with a strong dialect no disrespect but he looked at me and said that do." I said, that did. (laughs) And if you've ever been saved, that's the only way you've been saved is by the grace of God. And tonight, if you've never been saved, you can be saved. And it will be by the grace of God. Our heads are bowed in prayer. Thankful for the way the Lord has moved in this service tonight could there be one here without a personal relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask you, if you joined the church? I'm not concerned about any of that. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Then I'm going to ask you tonight right there where you sit to pray a prayer of repentant faith, call on the name of the Lord, ask him to save you. And the good news of the gospel is whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In about a minute and a half, we're going to be standing to our feet to sing. And tonight, if you have asked the Lord to save you tonight, I'm going to ask you to come. If you want to be saved, but you want some more information about how to be saved, I'm going to ask you to come. Could it be that you've prayed and asked the Lord to save you? You've been saved earlier this week, but you've never made it public. I'm going to ask you to come. What a wonderful way to end this night with people coming to say, I I want to be saved Or, Pastor Chad, I have been saved and I I want to make that public. It may be that some Christian wants to come and thank the Lord for his grace or pray that God would move in pity on the life of someone you know that is still living before grace. However the Spirit of God is moving on your heart, I'm going to pray and as we sing, you come. Father, do now by your sovereign will and work that which only you can do. Save the lost, encourage the saint, make much of Jesus. And we make our petition this night in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Preaching Ministry Podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.